Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Deaver has won it. Perkins goes in first. What a legend. What a champion. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As always, a great pleasure to have you with us for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man who certainly made his mark in one of the great eras of football at any stage of the competition. A triple premiership player, so much more. He's been a successful coach. And not long ago, he was in uh, within one kick of becoming a premiership coach in the VFL. His name is Andy Collins and he's in the studio. Hello, mate. Peter, it's a privilege to be here and to spend time with you today. It's a privilege to have you here. We go back a, a little way through the days of the, the VFL and uh, your coaching career there, but it's lovely to catch up with you again. How are you going? Yeah, going well. Like Obviously, uh, we lost the grand final, having the last two kicks a goal within 30 metres, and uh, a young boy by the name of Willie Wheeler takes that uh, weight of the world of losing that moment, but... Um, Feeling good, you know, obviously life has been really kind to me and uh, finds me here. The relationship that you had with Craig McRae, who was your opposite number in the VFL Grand Final, but you go back a little way. Yeah, obviously I have great love and respect for Craig and uh, he's uh, been announced, I think, the AFL Coaches Association Rookie Coach of the Year. Mm. Um, I think Craig actually turned 46 on the day of the Grand Final so I went up to hug him uh, before the game and uh, he said, it's my birthday. And I said, mate, I'm sorry, but what are you asking for a birthday <laughs> present? You know, you want me to forfeit this uh, grand final victory. Um, but Craig uh, was a Brisbane Lion footballer, one of the original small forwards. Um, just off air, Pete, I spoke about the decade of the, the small forwards really came in the early 90s and uh, we saw this. Uh, evolution of these small forwards and Craig was one of the originals uh, left foot and gave a little back pocket player from Hawthorne a really hard time he was quick elusive really talented I physically harassed him sometimes even bullied him and he would stay footy focused and gave me a couple of uh, hidings which was a bit embarrassing at the time Um, and then we just struck up a friendship that that has lasted one, firstly, on, on footy, then we started to coach together, um, and our paths have crossed in coaching ever since. He has a real passion for coaching. He'll be a terrific head coach if given the opportunity to do so. You're a terrific coach, and you have a passion for coaching. Was it always going to be that way? All through your playing days, was that a stepping stone to one day coaching, or did the light just come on at some stage? Uh, no, I started coaching at a very young age. Um, a lot of 
young players will be asked at 17, 18 years of age to coach their junior footy team. So at 17 years of age, I was asked to coach a junior team of my footy club, which was Doncaster Heights. Um, I was lucky to to move into Teachers College. Um, and uh, I think that as a sporting nut, being a PE teacher was the ultimate profession to go into because I only love sport. Probably didn't really think about the ramifications of teaching kids, but I saw it as a chance to do sport every day, um, seven days a week. So moved into teaching and, and developed a skill set. So as soon as I retired, um, Sandringham, my old VFA club, um, you know, my pathway is a bit different, as you know, to, to AFL. Um, they they called me and asked me if I wanted to be a head coach. So I started being a head coach at 30 years of age. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed it since. You've had a lot of involvement in the VFL competition over the years. Uh, there are many people who will deride the VFL as being, well, some people say irrelevant. That's certainly not the case. You're very passionate about the competition. What makes you that way? Yeah, I think that a lot of it is got to do with my own history um, the, the, of the VFA. And this is, for all the listeners, they've got to remember the football traditions of Victoria, that there were two strong rival competitions equal prior to World War II. And Williamstown Football Club had just recruited a fellow by the name of Ron Todd, Mm. um, the leading goal kicker of the Collingwood Football Club, to come and play VFA football at Williamstown. So these these competitions were rivals to each other. And unfortunately, um, the VFA closed during World War II and the VFL continued. And post-World War II, um, the VFL became a stronger competition. So I'm really proud of the heritage of my own VFA days, um, and which we now call the VFL. And that is very historical. The Williamstown Footy Club um, that I now coach could have easily been in the AFL. So could have Port Melbourne. These two clubs are as old as any football club in Australia. So I, I take that as a, a very proud badge to be representing the VFL now and and to be a spokesman of the VFL. And I love that. I love the footballers that I coach, you know, that they go to work every day. Um, They're living life and uh, and that I have the privilege of coaching them in a game of footy that brings our community together. And so, you know, you'll hear me talk really passionately about the VFL and people should respect the VFL enormously because of its historical value. I remember those VFA days as a kid growing up. It would be go and watch Collingwood on Saturday and go and watch Port Melbourne on Sunday. And sometimes you'd get to the port ground and there'd be 10,000 people there. It'd be packed and it had a brilliant atmosphere. It was different to the VFL as it was then known, the major competition, but it was still just enormous. Very tribal. And, uh, you know, I was Box Hill born and bred, so we would walk up and, you know, barracked for Hawthorne and barracked for Box Hill and... That, that's a lovely time of football that we had Saturday football and Sunday football and we varied for both. Um, and we knew that the VFA was a little bit more brutal. Just a bit. Uh, and so it was actually, as a kid, you would, you would uh, go down and, and see all sorts of incidents <laughs> but, that you wouldn't uh, perhaps have seen on the Saturday football. And that, that brought a great novelty to the competition but also a great integrity that this was a really hard game. A lot of footballers would use um, VFA as a pathway to the VFL and a lot of former VFL players at their new their careers would finish in the VFA. 
so there was a great synergy between the competitions and they complemented each other. Um, so, you know, that's a really nice part of history too, isn't it? It is. And speaking of history, you've already mentioned the fact that you're a sports nut. You just love sport. It's not just football, is it? You, you really do appreciate the nuances of sport and the emotions that it can bring. Well... We were just talking again uh, about those moments and uh, I love following all sports. There's lessons to be learned in sport uh, that convey into life and uh, we see that played out in the drama of sport worldwide. So, you know, ever since I remember, I was just so passionate to try everything. You know, I I remember playing, I love badminton as a game, table tennis as a game, um, right through to, you know, if you could try soccer, um, which wasn't very popular as a kid in the 70s. And I joined a soccer club. I joined a baseball club. Um, these were all all things that I tried, even 10-pin bowling for a period of time. So, What was your best score in 10-pin bowling? Uh, 270. Oh, that's uh, yeah, well. So Not many get that. I was the under-15 uh, high school champion. It only lasted for a little while. Um, but uh, footy then took its uh, priority. You know, cricket, I love my cricket in the summer and, and footy in the winter. And I think a lot of uh, my generation of friends um, that grew up in the area of boxing, we just loved all sport and we played it all. What's your earliest footy memory, footy-related memory as a kid? So I'm a Hawthorne fan and, uh, and my mum and dad have a very romantic story of meeting in Hawthorne and Camberwell. Mum was brought up in an orphanage in, in that area and Dad uh, lost his father at 15. So they met at uh, a Hawthorne dance, I believe, um, a Hawthorne footy club dance. Um, and so he, I had no choice other than barrack for Hawthorne. And so going down to Glen Ferry Oval and seeing Peter Hudson kick footies over the fence mm. um, and going there nearly every or every second week to Glen Ferry Oval to see Hawthorne play with my dad, and my uncle was, was my fondest memories. Kick those flat punts that yep. nobody else would even try and kick now, but he kicked them with such unerring accuracy. It was freakish. And, and some of your listeners wouldn't remember these names, but, you know, Hawthorne fans do. You know, Alan Martello. Mm. Um, Peter Crimmins was my favourite player because he was a small, blonde-headed, and I proudly wore number five on my back and uh, later in my career I got the privilege of being the first Hawthorne player to wear number five. So I had the, I had the real honour of, of being a footy fanatic and, uh, and then playing for, for the club that I loved. So before that, you've fallen in love with the game. You want to play football, presumably for Hawthorne at some stage. That all came about. But how was the path? Because it did come through the VFA, as you've already mentioned. So we... we being a vertically challenged uh, person, Pete, I don't have the height <laughs> of you. Um, I think that with long stops, I stand at 176 centimetres. Um, I got taller throughout my career. I think by the end of it, I finished at 180 centimetres. Did you? How but did you do that? I just kept uh, putting that in, you know, in, <laughs> in the record. Um, Stop measuring myself. Um, but one of the things that the non-traditional pathways was that we – we came through a zone, and Box Hill was Hawthorne's zone. Um, but I played football in Doncaster, which was Fitzroy's zone. And so um, Fitzroy identified me, asked me down. They realised I lived in Hawthorne's zone. So I went down and asked if I could 
trained with Hawthorne and um, they said you need to be invited. Uh, they never invited me. Um, luckily enough, um, uh, they gave me a call one day to ask if I could make a number up in an under-17 uh, practice game. And, and I did okay. I got invited down to Hawthorne under-19. So I spent three years there, uh, re- relatively successful, and then hoping that I'd make the transition, transition into Hawthorne. It didn't occur. And uh, I wrote to every football club, um, state league footy club in Australia. And uh, only two clubs responded. Uh, one was East Fremantle and one was Sandringham Football Club. And uh, Bob Keddy, mm. uh, 1971 premiership player, who was the head coach. And being a Hawthorne fan, I went down to, to meet Bob Keddy and uh, fell in love with Sandringham um, and I was really privileged to have Bob Ketty as my coach. Um, Dennis Gallenberti, former CEO of the Western Bulldogs, was the team manager. Um, and uh, he he sort of started to direct my footy. And Bob was a tough man and uh, gave me some, some lessons about being a bit more resilient than I was at the time and being a bit tougher than I was at the time. We'll talk about the transition to Hawthorne, Andy, when we come back on the other side of the break. But something just occurred to me, that is you must have an affinity with the salt water because you started at Sandringham down by the water there, at the, as it is now the Trevor Barker Beach Oval, and then you're at Point Jellybrand. Both uh, reasonably exposed places to the elements at various times. Well, isn't that a lovely uh, little coincidence? But... You know, being on the water is a very peaceful place and I'd take it every day of the week. All right, let's take a break and we'll come back and explore some more of the great journey of Andy Collins when we come back. 212 games, triple premiership player. It's a pleasure to have Andy as my guest and there'll be plenty more from him on the other side of the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a joy it is to have Andy Collins as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. We probably should record what's been going on in the commercial breaks because we could make a different show out of that, really, couldn't we? Yeah, Pete, as I said, it's an honour to be here and sitting opposite you. All right, let's continue the journey. So... You dreamed of perhaps playing for Hawthorne. You had that time as an under-19 player. It didn't quite work out. You go to Sandy, play at the famous ground there. How did the transition happen that you actually got to the Hawks? Yeah, it it happened uh, um, with a bit of difficulty. Um, In those days, uh, Hawthorne still had the rights of me as a VFL player, but I was playing at Sandringham. And uh, those were the days you needed clearances between clubs. Um, I played at Sandringham, you know, as a different competition. So I became the best and fairest and premiership player in my first year at Sandringham. My old uh, lecturer at university was a gentleman by the name of David Parkin. And uh, David was coaching Fitzroy. um, And I was approached by numerous VFL clubs, uh, as they were known then, um, to to trial out. And uh, I went to Fitzroy thinking that uh, my lecturer would look after me. Um, and unfortunately, um, they also cut me. Um, they didn't think I was good enough. So um, after a real bit of soul searching and plenty of fish and chips, uh, I went back to Sandringham Football Club under Bob. 
Um, in those days, there were mid-year intakes. And uh, again, I was approached by numerous uh, VFL clubs. And Hawthorne was one of those. And Alan Jeans came with a uh, an interesting proposal that if you didn't play senior football in 1986, um, you could get a clearance to any uh, VFL club that you wanted to. So I was really determined. You know, I wasn't a fan of the Hawthorne Footy Club at that particular time because they were restricting me and put in a price tag, a very small price tag, on an untried player. And uh, so I went back to Hawthorne and uh, and then, you know, developed a, a stronger relationship with the players as a senior player and one that was confident as a young man coming through that I could hold my own against these guys. Um, and uh, got on well with Alan that year and I thought even though I didn't play a senior VFL game in 1986, I, I, I saw an opportunity um, and I did deliberately targeted then a couple of players, even though my teammates, to take their spot. And I was pretty brutal on the training track. Who were the players you targeted? Probably, uh, they probably don't like to be saying, but one one who became a great mentor of mine and, and was Russell Green. Um, He's you know, been a guest coming, on this program. Yeah, he was coming towards the end of his career and perhaps he wandered out of the back pocket um, at that particular time. And another at the time was the vice captain of the football club, Richard Loveridge. And uh, so he just trained with those guys and, be very physical against those guys. Did you feel any compassion for them while you were showing this physicality towards them? Um, firstly, you know, and I say this to any any person, the hardest opponent, Pete, in life is yourself. So you've got to conquer yourself. Uh, the second one in football terms, um, and you get asked this question as a footballer, who's the hardest opponent you ever played on? Well, I always think it was my teammates at training. Mm. And uh, so Russell Green, Richard Loveridge, I had John Platten to train against. So if I could train against John Platten, um, then I could beat any rover that was my opponent. So um, the, our fiercest rivalries were sometimes with our teammates. But once we um, put on the jumper, then we came together. They were the kings of the world, the people that you were playing with. That was a remarkable team, a remarkable team of individuals that somehow managed to gel as one of the great teams of all time. But it must have taken some management to make those individuals into a great team. Now, I'm flattered that you have me on the show here, you know, but we also understand that I'm a role player of that time. And But everybody plays that. their role. Everybody, yeah. nobody can have a team that's full of Dermot Brereton's and Jason Dunstall's and Robert Dippier Domenico's and the people who grab the headlines. Everybody has to play their role, and you played yours. Yeah, it was a golden era of AFL football when media was really starting to come to the fore and football on television had a real glory years and big personalities started to come, whether it was Gary Ablett Sr., you know, Wayne Carey, you know, Dermot Brereton, Jason Dunstall, John Platten, Robert Dippier Domenico, you know, and I just happened to be in a really successful club. And Alan Jeans was an incredible manager. We started the show talking about management and communication. He was an incredible manager of athletes. And he made us all feel really important, whether you were a role player or a superstar. So I understand the privileged position that I was playing at Hawthorne at that time. And I was really determined, you know, to, to make the grade and to be in their best 22. Uh, I was really fortunate um, in the end to have coaches that believed in me 
teammates that uh, believed and supported me, and I was able to play in one of the best eras at the Hawthorne Football Club. And as it turns out, the Premiership didn't take long in coming. 88, what are your memories of that first Premiership? Because it was over a long way from home. I often ask this question of guests on the program. When a grand final is over so far from home, do you get the chance of taking it all in a little bit better than you would if it went down to the wire, which was going to happen the next year anyway? Yeah, so the 88 grand final was my second grand final. So I had the uh, uh, fortunate of not playing in the Jimmy Stein's prelim final the year before and being selected in the 1987 grand final team, um, which we played Carlton on a hot day in which mm. we got bathed by the Carlton Football Club. And uh, I remember, you know, that they'd worked incredibly hard and, and perhaps Hawthorne had played their grand final the week before. Um, so myself, Darren Pritchard, Two of the younger guys in that team played in the 87 grand final and we got toweled. And I remember thinking this would never happen, that I would play another AFL game, let alone play in a premiership. So in 88, when we got there again, um, experience is a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm 23 years of age, I think, 24 years of age. And I was really confident that I, you know, I personally could hold up on that stage. Um, the Melbourne Football Club were quite inexperienced as a young team. And as I said, we'd played them previously in the prelim the year before. And we felt that there was a psychological advantage to perhaps how maturity had over them. And they ran out, and I, I'm not sure if you've interviewed any of those boys, but I think that in hindsight they were a bit overawed. And we'd spoken a lot about that. And we settled um, very quickly. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, feeling very comfortable on that stage that day and, and we won the game pretty quickly. The 89 grand finals in folklore, it's regarded as one of the greats. It's regarded as one of the toughest for all sorts of reasons. What are your recollections of that game? Yeah, it is. Uh, and it is folklore for the reason of the physicality of the game. Uh, you know, for, for many of your listeners that, the, the 89 grand final, there was always an element of grand finals that you played with physical fear. Um, there was an expectation that you would do whatever it took to win the game of footy. And sometimes that, that could be outside the rules of the game. Um, and so there was an element of that. And definitely the game early on sparked, you know, um, some real adrenaline from both teams. Um, so I was really... I remember being really nervous and apprehensive about the opening stages of the game, and but our experiences told us that we had to go and play footy. Um, and as they were physically intimidating to us, we had to stand up but impose ourselves in the game. And, and we settled really quickly. Um, at half time, though, you know, we were a bit of a mess in the medical room. And uh, how serious was Dipper at half time of that game? Oh, no, he was, he was a real mess. Dermot. Um, there was other players that had just scraped into the games that were were getting local anaesthetic. Um, and I remember Alan Jeans, you know, as he called the meeting in, there was a lot of us still in medical rooms getting attention. Um, John Platten, you know, was, was knocked out early in that game. I think Gary Ayres had come off injured. Um, and he called us in and then gave us that famous speech of paid the price. And... Uh, you know, that, that's what I remember most, you know, the, that we settled quickly. 
um, the game was violent. Um, and then Alan Jeans gave this great speech. And, uh, you know, the second half, as Geelong came back, it's, it's a bit of a haze. But when the siren went, you know, that, that emotion comes out of obviously that we knew we played in a special game. You've spoken about half-time. What about three-quarter time? I think you have five or six goals in front at three-quarter time. The game essentially seemed in the bag. But did you know that because of the physical toll that had been exacted over the previous three quarters that you were going to be running on empty at some stage? Yeah, definitely. You know, Alan, again, re-emphasised the messages of that. And he knew that Geelong were coming. And, uh, you know, the game was no longer on our terms, you know, and... uh, and they had settled into the game. And, you know, Gary Ablett was just having uh, one of those amazing games. For anyone that was there and any anything about the folklore of that game, you know, to see an individual dominate the best stage that perhaps no other individual has ever done, um, you know, was even as a, an op- opponent player, you know, an opposition player, you admired that. And so we knew they were coming. Um, you know, so three quarter time, I have very little recollection except the message has been re-emphasised, and we had a great um, philosophy that you know we just played out the game. You know, there's there's great things that we will always uh, talk about that we we're born to play finals. That was Dipper's big catch, great born to play finals. Mm-hmm. Um, play the moment, you know, not the result. You know, and if we lose a game of footy, we just run out of time. So Alan Jeans was big on those philosophies and I, I still bring those philosophies of his to our footy team or my footy team so I coach. There's one more premiership we'll talk about in a moment, but let's talk about the year between those two flags. Could have been Andy Collins, Brownlow medalist. Uh, yeah, I, I keep telling my son this. and uh, <laughs> um, But this is a great memory in itself that, um, you know, I'm the best and fairest winner of the the of a team that doesn't play in the finals or doesn't play in the grand final. We play finals, we're knocked out early. But we were just walking wounded. We'd uh, Collingwood become the nineteen ninety premiers and we'd beaten Collingwood both, I think, both times that year. Perhaps by an average winning margin of over ten goals. And uh and so it was a waste of a, a year from a team perspective, you know, um, the Hawthorne fans would cringe that Jason Dunstall fractured his skull and uh, and he was out for the majority of the year. John Platton had a serious knee injury and uh, and then I became the first rover, um, you know, uh, rather than the, the back pocket player. I had to take over that mantle as an on-baller. And it just shows that all on-ballers win Brownlow. Brownlow's because that was the only year that I, I got votes and... Uh, then when John re- uh, knee was repaired the year after, I went back to the back pocket <laughs> and played the next five years and didn't get a Brownlow vote for the rest of the, my time. Oh, well, it's still a good memory. Uh, yeah. What was it, fifth, I think, you finished? Yeah, and, and I got nervous actually on the night, and I'm thinking this would be a bit silly. Did you get uh, off the beers it, at that stage? When no, you... well, a good thing was throughout my playing career, I was a non-drinker. Right. And um, so wasn't on the beers at all that, that time. Um, but uh, when I was getting some votes and I'm thinking, oh, this is surely not. And thank God it went to somebody else because uh, I could think of nothing worse at that time, um, you know, as a role player that I loved to be under the guard of, of 
the media. Um, I could think of nothing worse. And Tony Liberatore was the winner. Uh, he had a great year and uh, I just wiped my brow and uh, it was fantastic. Having known some of your teammates from that era, Andy, I think the one, if you were off the beers, I think they made up for it for you <laughs> in <laughs> a couple of ways. The third of the premierships. It was a unique premiership because it wasn't where we expect it to be played. No, and and that was now our home ground. Mm. We were playing the West Coast Eagles, who are an incredibly up-and-coming um, team that had revolutionised fitness training. Um, and uh, within 12 months, these young boys had become men and become a premiership threat um, to, to the rival Victorian teams. And uh, playing at Waverley, um, I think it's famous. My family went to the grand final and obviously we're under stairs, but the Batmobile and uh, mm. Angry Anderson, I think, sung that. These are memories people tell me of, of the game. But um, personally, uh, I started on the bench in the 91. Jimmy Morrissey played on Chris Lewis, a terrific um, Indigenous player who was a bit taller that happened to be my opponent normally when we played on West Coast. He was a better matchup. Um, Jimmy Morrissey was nearly one of the best players that day. Um, and again, I just played a very small bit part of the of the day, but rapt to be part of it. Uh, I will share a funny story. Uh, we had a 1991 reunion. That is the third that often the 91 reunion gets ignored a little bit because of the 88-89. And we're at the Q Hotel and we just watched, um, and this is the only grand final I've ever watched in its entirety. We watched the... 91 grand final back in its entirety. And we're sitting there as a big boardroom table, having a dinner at the Q Hotel, watching the game. And Andy Gowers and Stevie Lawrence say to Michael Tuck, do you know who I am? And and Michael Tuck, who's very elderly, you know, must have been 37 years of age, and Andy and, and Stevie must have been 21, goes, of course I do, young fella. And refused to say their name. One of the funniest moments that we had. And for the whole day, and I think even to this day, Michael Tuck refuses to name any of those young players of the 91 team. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That is a great story. Uh, just one point about 91. Because it was where it was, because it was at Waverley, did it feel different? It'd be My analogy, Andy, would be if they ran the Melbourne Cup at Caulfield one year, it would still be the Melbourne Cup, but it would feel different. Did yeah. it feel different that yeah, day? Yeah, it did. And, it, and uh, we felt that we had even an advantage on it. Um, the great thing, it was very familiar. We knew it was a grand final. We're going to take a break and then we'll talk about the rest of the days at Hawthorne and the turbulence of that era at Hawthorne because uh, your last game turned out to be what is now referred to as the merger game. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And the other thing that we will do is I'll turn the phone off in the break and there's a tradition in media that if your phone goes off when you're in the studio, that that is a slab. You have to buy a slab. So we might just get the slab and continue the conversation afterwards. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. Andy Collins is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat. More with Colo coming up after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a delight it is to have Andy Collins as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Apart from all of your achievements uh, with premierships, 
you were Mr. Durability. You didn't miss many games, did you? Oh, in the end, uh, I think I hold, um, and I tell my family again this, uh, I hold the record for the most consecutive Hawthorne games. 189, I think it was. That's correct, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it had been so hard to get there in the first place. And many of the lessons that I'd learned along the way is that, you know, there's that internal competition and don't give a teammate an opportunity to take your position. And so I was determined um, to, to do that. Um, we went professional halfway through my footy career. I think in, in 1991, you know, I'm a professional AFL footballer. And, uh, and I felt that seven days was long enough to, to recover from most injuries. And I, I played with many injuries. In, in those days, the, the medical teams were probably a lot more um, freer with injections, you know, local anaesthetic in particular. Um, with local anaesthetic, you were able to play with a lot of different injuries, ankle injuries. And I was lucky that I'd never had any soft tissue injuries. So it was more joint related. And, uh, and with that, you just cry yourself to sleep after the game. And it was incredibly painful when the injections wore off. Um, but it did allow us to get out there on most weekends. Do you have any long-term effects from having done that for so many times in your career? Yeah, the, the body is sore. You know, I, I've had a lot of operations, even had my last operation last November on my knee. So that, that's part of it, and none of us would take it back. We're skipping over so many things because we've only got an hour. We need five hours <laughs> to have this conversation properly. But let's for, fast forward to that game that I was talking about, the turbulent time when it looked like being... Hawthorne and Melbourne in a merger and that merger game and you played in that game and you remember it for all sorts of reasons. Tell us your recollections of it. Well, there was a divide within the playing group at that particular time. Um, there was the, those that were pro-merge and those that were against. Um, traditional players, you know, myself, Chris Langford, Chris Langford in particular, Don Scott was, was a very strong leader and um, Chris... I think was our vice captain or one of the senior leaders at the time uh, would rally a group. And then there was the pro merger group um, that the club had rallied, if you like, um, uh, you know, Jason, um, Shane Crawford, a young Shane Crawford, John Platten. And so there was a divide within our own playing group. And we looked forward, if you like, to the weekend where we could just come together and stop talking about the politics of the football club and just play the game of footy. So that day, you know, and the media could not um, help itself, but we could not escape from the merger game. And, uh, and it became a, a really strong game in which Hawthorne fans, I don't remember the Melbourne fans, but Hawthorne fans came out in force and, and particularly, you know, they didn't want to see the, the Hawthorne footy club merge. And there was something else that happened in that game as well. What are you alluding to there? You know full well what I'm alluding to. Oh, I didn't play very well. <laughs> Played on a, a, a footballer by the name of Jeff Farmer, but a young Melbourne player might have uh, ran in the way of a, a clenched fist, um, which was a bit silly. And I think that and I've been reasonably disciplined throughout my career. You know, I played the game pretty tough and on the edge. Um, but it was an undisciplined act in which I, I struck an opposing player and got a one-week suspension. Um, and after 212 games, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm really proud that the next year all the rules changed around tribunal hearings because these days that would have been probably a small fine, but definitely they took your record or my record would have been taken into the count. Uh, Mr. Neil Busy, Busy um, gave me a one-week suspension. Uh, we went up in Sydney, played in the finals. Um, Craig O'Brien for the Sydney Swans, I think, kicked five goals against a great friend of mine who had had to play back pocket for his first time nearly in his career. Darren Pritchard went into the back pocket, played on Craig O'Brien, and uh, we lost that final narrowly. I think Sydney go on to maybe play in that grand final. Um, but that was a lost opportunity and a very undisciplined act by me. So it's easy to have the rear vision mirror out and look back and say what might have been, but is that one of your biggest regrets in footy? Oh, not to play a last game. Uh, you know, I've been a fanatical Hawthorne f- person, but it, already I was on the decline as a footballer, um, both physically and mentally. You know, part of my game was based on my athleticism and my edginess. And I remember uh, a coach, you know, one of my last coaches asked me to, to rough up a young Ben Cousins. He was 18, a baby-faced kid, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a former school teacher, you know, so uh, I just couldn't do it. And I knew that I was losing the edge, therefore, um, you know, with some of the young up-and-coming players that I, that I really respected and admired these young up-and-coming players, but I, I felt that you know, with all that had occurred in that merge year um, and being at 30 years of age and not playing my best footy, it was just a good time to get out. So the bloke who used to rough up his own teammates at training couldn't rough up Ben Cousins, and that told you something? Yeah, it did. You know, there were some terrific young players. I remember playing on, you know, uh, Jeff Farmer, Andrew McLeod, these these origins of these small forwards. Um, and, you know, they, they were young kids as I once were and, and uh, you know, perhaps because of the merged year and, and winning and losing just didn't seem as prevalent, you know, to the survival of the Hawthorne Footy Club and, you know, that was really important, the survival of the Hawthorne Footy Club and I'm so glad that Don Scott and Ian Dicker provided that leadership and uh, and here we are decades later that we've got a, a, a mighty powerful Hawthorne Footy Club. We're just about out of time, so there is so much that we've left out simply because we don't have time, but we've got some final thoughts coming up and some broader thoughts on, on the game and sport and life in general still ahead of us on the other side of the break. Our final segment with Andy Collins coming up in just a moment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you're enjoying the chat. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment with Andy Collins on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. One of the things I love uh, about you and catching up with you and chatting to you is the passion that you have for what you do. And being at Williamstown now, there are so many great stories about that famous football club, which goes back so many years. Do you have a favourite apocryphal story about what happened at Williamstown in days gone by? Yeah, I, I was talking about uh, the great Jerry Callahan. When I first went there, we have the Jerry Callahan Award, which is the best and fairest award. And uh, and then I had the privilege of meeting this mythical man. 
um, he was nicknamed the monster. Mm. And uh, not only because he wasn't that pretty, but he was a brutal footballer. And he was a ruckman. Um, he was the captain. And he became a captain coach of multiple premierships. And he would lead um, at a win-at-all-cost attitude. And so Port Melbourne uh, was the Docklands and Williamstown were the railways. And these blood games, and they were called blood games, would come to uh, fruition. I heard these stories. And the greatest story is about the pig head on the Port Melbourne race. As the Williamstown players ran out, there was a pig head with the name Monster over the top of it to intimidate Jerry Callahan. Now, I believe Jerry Callahan was best on ground and that many Port Melbourne players did not see the game out um, because of Jerry's antics by the So I love those stories of the old VFA and uh, and I'm really proud to be coaching the Williamstown Footy Club. With this passion for football and sport that you've got, how long do you see yourself continuing to be involved in the game? Will it be for as long as you can until they carry you out? Well, I've got a great head for radio, Pete. That's <laughs> me and, too. And one of the things that there's no mirrors around, and, and I think coaching and being around sport makes you feel young, you know, and and here it is. I've, I've loved sport since I can remember, and I still love sport. So, you know, being having the privilege of coaching young men and, and understanding that I had this great playing career, you know, a really fortunate um, playing career, that that's a gift that now we can give. And it, in saying that, it's a very selfish thing because if you see these young men like Kane Lambert, who's playing in a grand final, who you've once coached, or Michael Gibbons in his first year of, of AFL footy, um, to assist them on their path, it's, it's a beautiful, very selfish reward that you give yourself. And, uh, and I love coaching these young guys helping them achieve their footy goals, helping achieve a community. Um, and, and if these young guys grow up to be great citizens of, of our, our, our state and our country, then maybe that's a nice calling in life, isn't it? You say that you've been very fortunate, Andy Collins. I reckon we've been fortunate for the last hour to be able to share your journey. You've walked a great line in your football career and in your sporting career in that you were... A brilliant player, you were tough, but you're also one of the great blokes of the game and it's been a privilege to sit with you for the last hour. Thanks for coming in. No, pleasure, Pete. And next time I would like to interview you. Oh, no, I think it will be a whole lot more interesting what we've been through over the last hour or so. No, thanks Thanks very much for having me. You're it's a champ. Great. Thank you. Andy Collins joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Hope you enjoyed it. There was so much that we could have talked about. Maybe we'll get him in for another edition of the show one day. Anyway, we'll be back here same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why Tyre Power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 21 91.